Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I am honored today to have as my guest, Mr. John Clark. John is a lawyer, a writer, a pastor, and a farmer who lives in the the Green Mountain state of Vermont. And he's written a book called Small Farm Republic, Why Conservatives Must Embrace Local Agriculture, Reject Climate Alarmism, and Lead an Environmental Revival. John, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, brother. It's fun. Well, as everyone can hear, there are wonderful sounds going on in the background. John is actually uh, conducting this this, uh, discussion. He is on his porch, I believe you said. So, you know, so so, so this is not piped in stuff. This this is not added to. This is actual real-time sounds. So are you are you referring to my livestock? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. They're uh, they're calling for food. Other people invest in stocks and bonds, and we invest in just stocks. <laughs> All right, good. So, so John, tell us you have uh, on your your website uh, some about your background, which is very interesting. So, so just talk to us a little bit about uh, you know just how you grew up. You, I believe you're born in Connecticut, and you know just how did you go from where you were then to now yes and my cows uh will will uh chime in if i say anything inappropriate um so we chat a little bit beforehand and i'm excited because in this audience i can share as part of this journey more um my christian path and it's really part of my testimony and i don't in the book not because i have to put my lamp under a desk but you don't need to be a christian to understand the premise of the book which right. is that, you know, conservatives in all of us should be closer to our food. The fact that scripture and our experiences as Christians and through history suggests there could be extremely dire consequences to not doing so. You know, you don't have to believe in Christianity to study it and understand it either allegorically or uh, just, you know, thematically. Um, but so with your permission, I actually I'd really like to talk a little bit about my um, my conversion. I, I, ra- yes. I rarely talk about. And I, and I want to talk about it because anything we talk about here, you said you want to ask me questions. Anything we talk about about me is just relative to how God has used me. I don't like talking about me. And yet if talking about me helps people understand God or, or, or come to God in a relational you know, way, then it's really worth it. In fact, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he actually says at the beginning, I've actually only included the facts that are relevant to my conversion because nothing else matters. And I actually, I actually look at life that way. So, so let me share with your listeners just how dark faithfulness, faithlessness is, because that's how I was raised. And and you've made a couple of references. You talked about me being born in Connecticut. You talked about me moving from white collar to blue. And let me tell the story. So I'm a funny animal, and God, we can blame God by the way. He, we can blame him for our sense of humor. He clearly has one. Uh, we could blame her um, for our faults, but, you know, we, we'll blame Adam. Um, but so God, I was created in the womb in Vermont. So I, and this is a big deal in Vermont, because if you're not born here, you know, you're a flatlander and you're not a native. And that cultural split, just like the nation is become, it's been going on my whole life and I'm 60. 
Um, so I was conceived just near here. This is a farm my mom used to stay on in the 50s and where I hunted woodchuck as a kid. You know, so my ties to this agriculture of Vermont go right back to the womb. But then my mother married a Marine and moved to Connecticut and delivered me. And therefore, I was born with the birth defect of Flatlander. Okay. So <laughs> am I a Vermonter or am I a Flatlander? It depends on whether life begins in the womb or at the hospital in Connecticut. I maintain that I'm a Vermonter. And of course, it doesn't matter where you're born or the birth defect. Uh, just as it, as it doesn't matter um, whether you're circumcised to come to Christ. You know, it's about whether you follow the creed. And the creed in Vermont is self-reliance, independence, helping one another, and, and drawing food from the land. And this is something I saw um, as a child. And all my aunts and uncles here, I think this is important for our culture and for our conversation. They, they were poor people. They were mostly dairy farmers. They had suffered for, for decades, if not generations. And now we're all labeled white supremacists. The poverty, even now, that many white people live in in Vermont, and I saw it in Alabama. Alabama looked like Vermont to me, only hot and dry. But yes. many of the little hovels and, you know, and, and we have people living in little trailers from you know, the late 50s with like an electric heater or even a wood stove out the side of the thing in the middle of the woods where it gets 40 below zero. And we've got people moving here of, of a different skin color telling us how racist we are and hiring them for $200,000 a year to condemn all the white people. I digress here, but I'm not because the scriptures tell us that there is no black and white. There is no Jew or Greek. Um, the real dividing line, of course, is between those who believe and do not. And so I was one of those people who did not believe. And so jumping ahead of it, you know, I, I, you know, I got a little thin skinned about being called a white collar guy because I was. But I was blue collar long before I was white collar. And I yes. grew up. My parents were divorced when I was young. We were not we were not at all wealthy. I started working at the age of 12. By the age of 15, I had my own business. I worked um, 70 hour, 70 plus hour weeks at 17. I worked 80, 90 hour weeks at 18. I mean, I worked and then I got a chance to go to college and I decided I didn't want to work 80 hours a week for three bucks an hour for the rest of my life. And my dad helped me and I managed to go to college and I worked through college and I worked through law school and it was a lot cheaper to go back then. But to me, it was indeed, whatever your skin color, an extraordinary privilege to go to law school. And I never thought I'd crawl out of the um, Connecticut sort of inner city hell I had been indoctrinated into. So I have a foot in the country, a foot in the inner city. I become an attorney and I moved to the UK. So I become a tax attorney and I work for two years here and a year in the UK as an international corporate tax attorney. Now, believe it or not, that tax training, which the Lord had me do, I never would have become a tax attorney, but I wanted to go live in, in England and I could do that without recertifying as a solicitor or barrister there. I could literally use my credentials, start earning a living. And so I spent a year living there also, but tax and regulations and the way tax works and becomes more and more complex um, has a lot of application actually to our food supplies. And that's part of why my expertise is in, in, in the book and looking at food inflation, monetary policy and regulatory structures that drive up food costs. And farmers don't have that background. So when I moved back from the UK, though, I ended up, I was kind of bored in tax, you know, working for really, really rich people and Jaguar. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a blue collar guy. So I hung out a shingle and I started my own practice in Connecticut for about seven years. I ended up being a criminal defense, personal injury and divorce lawyer. And I never planned on doing any of that. And I hated the family law, but that's what paid the bills. And I was good at it. And then in two, 1997, so now we get to my testimony. Uh, at the time, there was a lot of stress in lawyering. Um, you know, we don't like lawyers until we until we need one. 
right. then look at Alliance Defending Freedom and others. We really need good lawyers now. We need lawyers with character. We need pastors with character. We need politicians right. with character. We need farmers with character. We need character in all aspects of our society. And um, the stresses were tremendous. So I went to the gym all the time and every morning, like five in the morning. That's how I got it out. I was bench pressing on uh, 400 pounds. I was actually 396. I was 34. And for kicks, I would drive up to Mount Washington in New Hampshire, even in the winter, and hike it solo. I'd go up. I'd leave at four in the morning. I'd hike up to the top of Mount Washington. It'd be 70 mile an hour winds and you know wind chill of 60 below zero. And you don't even think about trial when you're up there. You know, I mean, you just, right. you know, it was escapism. And I say that because, because, because where God came to me was physical and it might've been from overworking. I owned my own building. I was working 80 hours a week. I had been for years. I took one week off a year, which wasn't worth it because of the chaos I came back to. I was just a workaholic. And I, and I didn't mind that because I was positively impacting people's lives. It was, you know, I can tell you now I do biblical counseling and I'd much rather help people stay together than get divorced. You know, yes. I can tell you now I do, um, I do, uh, I, I deal with people in substance abuse. I'm, I'm a recovery coach. I try to help people who are in substance abuse situations, but it, it's so dark. I'm now volunteering at a local Christian school to teach because I'd rather help kids not become addicts. You know, right. I like to help people heal their marriages. And I learned that actually as a divorce lawyer, not as a believer, that's not everybody wants to get divorced and that the lawyer has a role psychologically of helping, you know, either make it better or worse. And, and, you know, there's such a thing as a war of the roses, ugly divorce, and there can be civil divorces. And lawyers have an important role and duty to play there. So in the midst of this, I hadn't been to a doctor in like 12 years. All of a sudden I start having unexplained pain in my muscles and it grew and it grew really bad. And, um, right around that time, my wife and I took a week off just to rest. We went to Maine. I came back, I was fully healed. And I come back and find out that one of my oldest friends had murdered his pregnant wife. And I went mm -hmm. in and I represented him and I found him counsel. It's a horrible, horrible case. Uh, she was pregnant with twins. And, and actually, he then inherited everything she owned under her will because under Connecticut law, he was found insane. So, you know, so I became, I became involved in that for years. But I think the combination didn't help. That stress was particularly poignant. But the pain all came back and it came back rapidly. And long story short, um, I was a person, I'm, I'm a, I was a tough person and this destroyed me. It was fibromyalgia syndrome. I'd only like heard about it and it was probably caused by Lyme disease that I had. And I had, you know, the full, the rash, I had a temp of 104 and, but I never saw the tick. And so I went on the, the standard antibiotics and then months later, I'm still crippled. I can't walk. I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not going up a mountain. I can't paint. I can't with it. I can't hold a brush in my hand without my arms seizing up. I can't sit in one place. I can't talk on the phone because my entire shoulder, which at this point, my muscles were quite big. You know, all of those right. muscles became uh, my adversary. And we might even refer to the adversary because it felt like I was possessed. I mean, I, I learned in that experience that pain can go beyond anything we've ever experienced and, and hell awaits. It's beyond anything we can comprehend and only God holds us back from it. And, and it destroyed me, brother. It destroyed me. And I battled it for six months and I kept going to court and I kept going to my clients and I kept, you know, taking care of my kids and everything else was okay. But this physical pain persisted. Now, what we later learned was that probably I had not treated the Lyme. I had late stage Lyme and 30 days of doxycycline didn't do it. So now I'm still trying to work 70, 80 hours a week with Lyme disease. I'm just deteriorating. 
And somewhere about four or five months into that, one morning, I just, I hadn't slept all night long. It became a vicious cycle of muscle pain, no sleep, worse muscle pain. I mean, it's like literally looking at your own body and it's become your enemy. These flares would just, I, I would just break down bawling, screaming in agony. And there was nothing my wife, who's an RN, could do. So both mm. of us were shocked. So two little things happened there. One was for the first time in, in my life, I, I really prayed and surrendered. I was in agonizing pain. It was in the morning. I couldn't even get up to reach for the painkillers. It was just, I, you can't, I can't, couldn't even, it was almost um, mind-numbingly destroying the levels of pain. And I still have them at times, by the way. I still struggle with this. It's God's gift to me. Um, C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone. I've had broken bones. I've had over a hundred stitches, probably most of them in my face. And I don't complain and I don't take painkillers. And I wasn't going to then either. And then one day I just couldn't take it anymore. And I was laying there and I prayed, I prayed so hard and I just prayed to die. And I just bawled because I had two young children and my wife and my business and my clients and everything in the world that I had ever created or worked so hard to build was threatened. And in that moment, my pain fell upwards. That's all I can explain is it just sort of like, it just like went away. I'd been, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men. I was trying different pills. I was trying homeopathics. I, they put me on an antidepressant, uh, a triptyline. Didn't help at all. Nothing helped. But prayer helped. And my wife, who was a lapsed Catholic and wasn't a believer, and we started talking about this. And we had another similar experience later where she just felt through me the pain leaving when I was in prayer. And I prayed to God. I said, God... No one should ever have to suffer this much. No human being ever. Please help me get well so that I can help other people. I had to close my law practice and I became a farmer. And to this day, I try to reach out and help people with fibromyalgia, most of whom are women and many of whom are dismissed by others who say it's in their head or their husbands or their children rudely dismiss them and it makes it worse. And so I've become the self-appointed poster boy for women to be gender binary. And so then my journey, now I'll jump forward, but that's my testimony. My testimony is that, and then, and then a few years later, so we started going to church as soon as I could walk enough to go to church in Vermont, bought a 140 acre, actually turned out to be a 160 acre dairy farm, had never made a bale of hay in my life. But I said, I need to be where my heart is. I I've been living wherever I live to make money. I want to live where my heart is and my heart is in Vermont. And so we brought our kids to raise here. We were up actually in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Most people yes. outside of Vermont are not familiar with it. You, that's you are. That's it. Well, I'm, it, yeah. I, I am familiar with it and I know that it has, that there's a lot to commend itself. And yes, there's a lot of similarity I know with parts of Alabama. You, you have a lot of swamp Yankees up there. We have a lot of swamp. We have water. Right now it's raining here. We've had a horrible year probably due to the volcano last year that nobody talks about in the media, Hunga Tonga, one of the largest volcanoes under ocean volcanoes, increased the water supply in the atmosphere by like 10% or more. And now we're told it's all global warming, but I digress. That's a piece I have out on Liberty Nation right now coming out. So I've been deep diving into that. But yes, the kingdom, to explain it to your listeners, the kingdom is about 25% of the land area of Vermont. And it probably has about five or 10% of its um, population. Um, it's vast, vast swamps, a lot of moose. It's brutally cold. Um, our farm there hit 43 below zero one winter. Another winter it hit 39 below zero. Long winters, um, seven months. We, we put up 210 days worth of feed. 
for those of you listeners who might understand farming, you guys down there, you could probably put your cows out to pasture just about all year long. And I'm jealous. Um, sure. I have to move a lot of bales when you let the cows go get it themselves, you know, <laughs> and that's part of what, what is what I discuss in the book and part of why it is that, you know, agriculture is both simple and very complex. You know, the, the, the terrain varies. Um, but so what happened with me then is so I just tried to heal and I tried to farm. Uh, after a few years, I sold the farm because, again, I mentioned I'm a money supply guy. And in 2005, I was absolutely convinced that the real estate market was going to collapse. This was the mortgage tranche debacle. You know, I might be a farmer, but I still read the Wall Street every journal, uh, Wall Street Journal every day. And you can't issue eight hundred billion dollars of loans to people with no jobs or assets or income or payments every year without having it collapse. And we've actually we've actually we bailed out Wall Street. and We've made it worse since. Thank you, Barack Obama, for bailing out Wall Street and bailing out Monsanto and bailing out industrial agriculture and just being showing that a black person could be every bit as a, tyranny, a, tyr, a, a tyrannical terrorist against America as any white person ever could be. But anyway, I digress. So that's why, you know, I, I had traditionally been something of a Democrat, but that too pushed me to the right. Bill Clinton, I had voted for him. I wasn't a Christian, but after what he did with Monica Lewinsky, I, I'm an attorney. I wouldn't do that with a client. It disgusted me on a moral level, transcending God's word, which somehow I knew in my heart, even though I wasn't saved, baptized on my 40th birthday, along with my wife and three children in Vermont. And then uh, a few years later, I got sort of pulled into ministry uh, for a, a church uh, where we raised money for a, a Ugandan pastor named Simon Peter Otudo, and we supported a school there and food and, and training for children there. He oversees a number of churches. And so it's funny how God could take a guy out of the you know inner city of East Hartford, Connecticut, save him, use his law degree to help people with fibro or farmers, because then in about 2016, the state of Vermont visited my farm unannounced to tell me that I could no longer sell halves of beef. And the way that works is we sell, we do, on, this is by virtue of on-farm slaughter. So rather than sending my cows to a USDA facility to be um, imprisoned and stressed in a, in a truck, and then it's not that it's that bad, but they're spared all of that distress and it works financially. We hire a slaughterer and we slaughter the animal on the grass on which it was born. It's best for the animal. It's humane. It's also, they never know what's coming. Uh, but it's also very clean. You know, we don't, we're not exposing them to other animals or other pathogens. So the Vermont um, Department of Agriculture had, had passed rules and they were actually implementing in the state a law to ban all on-farm slaughter. And as I write about in the book and others have written about, this is a, a sort of insidious, surreptitious effort by large corporate interests to dominate our food supply. And if you don't get that, then you're not awake. We see it now with the globalists who want to get rid of all cows. And as soon as you start looking at that, it doesn't look right. Something is very wrong in Denmark, to use that uh, cliche. And so after he came and, and told me that I couldn't sell halves of beef, and I challenged him and said, well, why not? They're slaughtered the same way. They're processed the same way. If you make me sell only a whole animal, so the, the, the rationale was that um, in order to qualify and not offend against the federal government that the state had to require that my customers could only buy a whole animal and that it had to be weighed live, live weight, which farmers, we don't keep scales around for 1200 pound animals. It's a big investment. So we'd actually have to pay for trucking to truck the animal to a scale, expose it to the pathogens in the truck and at the scale location where the downer cows go, you know, to the commission sales. And then we'd have to 
uh, bring it back again, all excess costs for nothing, for elevating form over substance. And I challenged him about this. And I said, how do you justify that in health and safety? I'm a lawyer. You can't do to me what you're doing to other lawyers. I know better. And um, so, but if, but if you were to buy a full beef from me, you'd need two stand-up freezers. This is grass-fed beef. You need about five grand, probably big family. You know, so you're narrowing my customer base. In fact, I don't think I've ever had anybody buy a whole beef. So I knew right away that what I've been doing for 20 years was under threat. So I talked to my wife. We called a press conference and I announced that I was going to keep selling halves of beef. I invited the state of Vermont to arrest me so that I could prove in court in my defense that what they were doing was an unconstitutional restriction on my liberties as a business person and as an eater of food. By the way, it was much more important than me as a farmer. I didn't have a problem with this. I could have just had my beef slaughtered at a USDA facility, which there aren't enough of, by the way. But And, and I could still sell it to you, my customer, the same animal and the same quality of processing. But you'd put the itinerant slaughterer out of business and you'd put a lot of custom processors, which are small local Vermont businesses, out of business. And that was the real goal. So I stood up for them and they came with me and a lot of other farmers. We descended on the state house. We repealed that law and... There goes a gunshot. The sound okay. of liberty, I'm told. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just hope it's nobody shooting anything of mine. I don't right. know what they'd be hunting this time of year. Maybe it's a woodchuck. Um, and so we continue now to do on-farm slaughter, but now actually I can sell quarters. And they've continued to try to... Last year, they tried to tell us that the federal government requires my customers to be on site when I slaughter. That is fiction. Why would you do that? Why are we paying a lawyer 150 grand a year in Vermont to work with the Department of Agriculture to tell farmers what our regs are? Boy, that's annoying. But <laughs> but I support people's liberty, of course. Right. And uh, and I and I use guns as a farmer, but mostly to shoot varmints or you know put animals down. We're about to slaughter about 10 yearling lambs. How would I have the slaughterer come and then coordinate the 10 different owners of those lambs to come watch them be killed? And what health and safety purpose does that serve? Do you have people come watch your donuts while you make them with all <laughs> kinds of hydrogenated fats to make sure that donuts don't suffer while they kill you with donuts? Do you put restrictions on how many animals um, or how many donuts can be sold like you do on me in Vermont? How many animals? I, I can only sell a certain number of animals. Bah humbug. I know what my rights are and the laws are. And the laws ultimately come from God. The Judeo-Christian traditions ensconced in our constitution about the unique, miraculous integrity of each and every individual is woven through the Old and the New Testament. That's where it comes from. And that's what they're out to destroy. So the other little parallel I want to share with your listeners, because I'm assuming we have a certain um, segment of Christian demographic here, is yes. that I was drawn into the Bible in part, you know, after my praying experience, it, I, I started to do a deep dive. I mentioned Lewis. I read, I've read a lot of stories, um, a lot of biographies. I've read about G.K. Chesterton, and, um, J.R.R. Tolkien and Dostoevsky and T.S. Eliot and other brilliant people um, who weren't Christians and became Christians because they were smart enough to follow the breadcrumbs that Christ left us in scripture. But some of those breadcrumbs have been lost today because our society has lost connection not only with God, but with God's provision for agriculture. And I mentioned to you before we came on in, in the Bible, Genesis tells us you're going to farm. It's what happens when you eat an apple you were told not to eat. Now you want to find out what it's like to make your own food, go make it. And you will keep doing that until you die into dust. 
And the book of Revelation tells us that famine comes because you cheated and interposed your idols of technology to not have to pay the price anymore of making your own food. Now you get it from China or Brazil or another distrust, untrustworthy place, and it has chemicals in it. It has chemicals in the ground that's destroying the microbiome that also come into your gut and destroy your microbiome because you are tied to it through God's provision. We're trying to cheat God. Now they want synthetic meat. They want to make us eat bugs. All of these things will wean us away from God's provision and make us dependent on an adversary who is feeding us things that are making our children sterile, have cancer, um, have probably transgenderism is probably caused by, at least in some cases or, or way or, or to degree, by um, uh, endocrine disrupting hormones, chemicals. Atrazine is a particular chemical. It's used in corn production. Here in Vermont, atrazine is blamed for causing male bass to lay eggs. That's a pretty phenomenal physiological impact from a chemical. But instead, we're told to worry about carbon dioxide. We're going to get rid of the cows because they pass gas, which is methane. So I guess we'll replace their manure with synthetic fertilizers that are made from methane, natural gas. I guess we'll be dependent on DuPont and Dow for our food supplies because our entire food system will be dependent on GMO crops, which are in turn dependent on chemicals like glyphosate and other chemicals. They'll patent it all. They're going to patent the meat. They're going to patent the meat they're growing from the fetal tissue of calves with soy grown in monocultures, highly subsidized by the federal government and you and me that destroy the earth, destroy God's creation, destroy the water, destroy our health. And that's how we're supposed to upgrade from cows. God made cows. I can tell you, you can hear my cows. God knew what he was doing when he made cows. They're amazing animals. They are not our enemy. They are our allies. And for 10,000 years, they have been providing us with meat and milk and clothing and warmth and companionship. And we take care of them. And we hear, oh, the poor cows. Peter wants to get rid of all the cows in the name of selling the cow, uh, saving the cows. Uh, Europe, most people have seen, they want to ban the cows to save the environment. It has nothing to do with saving the environment. It has everything to do with profitability and domination and a global one world government. So there you have my intro. I have proven I can talk interminably. Uh, Pastor, what questions might you have for me for your audience so we can try to wake more people up, especially Christians who will have no excuse because we should know better. We should know better than to be lazy and dependent on the adversary of this world for our every provision, including our, our, our physical needs and ultimately our health. And this is part of the idolatry. You know, we have replaced God's provision with all kinds of techno mystical gadgets, most of which create more sin and problems than they ever cured. So what can I tell you down in Alabama that we people in Vermont might share with you? Well, to start with, you know, most people have a pretty uh, almost, you know, dualistic view that it's either the no you know no government well what they what we think is no government interference versus you know on on that that's the republican side and i'm not even saying that that is actually the case but but that's you know that, that that's the appearance and then the other side is you know heavy green new deal 
do everything that that people say will help the environment. And and you've you've touched on this, but what is in in the book you don't accept that pure dualistic nature. So what is for conservatives, because most of the people that are listening are conservative, at least, you know, t- to me are conservative. What, what is the current Republican or conservative stance towards creation? And is it actually government just lets people do what they want? Is it actually laissez-faire, you know, what does that actually look like? Hmm. Great question. Um, and you specifically said toward creation. So I'll point out that actually I had a chapter in the book originally called a Christian ethic, which was a big chapter, which actually talked about the Christian duty uh, towards the earth as a steward, not a destroyer. And that really applies in animal welfare. If you think about it, um, you don't have to think much. The whole ideal of co- idea of kosher, in Judaism and the numerous rules relating to animals in the Old Testament uh, mean that Jewish people cannot eat an animal that is not slaughtered and treated through its life humanely. And this ties in with something I I started to talk about earlier, and I just want to mention it, that for me as a non-Christian in my search, farming brought me to the Bible and the Bible brought me to agriculture. There is so much in the Bible that is tied to that culture and that understanding of our Savior as a lamb. If you've never really held a lamb, you don't really understand just how pure and sweet and vulnerable it is at the shearing and at the slaughter. But also there's so much imagery about cows and sheep, and and I'm to be a shepherd. That's what you are as a pastor. It literally means shepherd. And you're supposed to tend the sheep. And then the sheep are supposed to be image bearers. And they're supposed to feed the word of God to the sheep of the world. The whole thing is steeped in agriculture and a culture of humility and gratitude, which we lose when we buy a packaged animal with no blood. There's no power of the blood when you have no, you never have to look at the blood and you never have to deal with the fact that something died that you might live. And so you lose your stewardship duty for the animals because you don't care anymore. And so people will be against on-farm slaughter and yet they're going to go buy packaged meat from, you know, that has the body parts of 30,000 cows ground together. What we're doing to um, our food supply is perhaps immoral. Uh, the Muslims have a similar tradition called halal. What is the, uh, what is the Christian ethic for how we treat animals? And will we have to answer to that to God? C.S. Lewis actually talks in The Problem of Pain about whether animals have souls. I'll leave that one aside in answering your question. Now, what you've given is the two poles of what I would call libertarianism, which is absolute laissez-faire, and the other extreme, which is absolute statism. Um, The balance has always been in the middle. I'm a believer in a regulated capitalism. We have not had a free market for 50 years for farms, as Wendell Berry and Joel Salatin and others have written and whose work I build upon. We have an increasing... um, uh, uh, complicity between large corporate interests and our government regulatory agencies, just like we have regulatory capture at the SEC for Wall Street, at the CDC and the FDA for pharmaceuticals. Our government has been co-opted. It is no longer subject to the Constitution and the will of the United States people. Um, it, and, and that is the USDA and the FDA are captured agencies. So the world is saying, you know, with the 
IPCC that the, the climate is warming, the Paris Accords that we have to do this. But boy, the EPA and the FDA don't believe with the world, don't agree with the world's determination that glyphosate causes cancer. Now, whether or not it does, I suggest that if you're godly, you leave it out until you know, because the policy in America has been that the 3,000 or more new chemicals created by man in violation of Isaiah 2.8, go read Isaiah 2.8 and look at what we're doing. Um, and and 3,000 new chemicals a year, they are not tested adequately. Bill Gates has developed a new preservative called Appeal. Have a look at that one. It'll be in your food. So aside from genetically modified organisms, which may not be harmful, they may even be beneficial, they are dependent on a chemical soup without which they will not function. The sale of GMO crops is truly the sale of chemicals. And most conservatives don't know this. Joel Salatin, very devout Christian and a libertarian, he and I have had this conversation um, he said, most of my customers for my organic food are liberals. When will conservatives stop eating crappy industrial junk food and giving themselves cancer and obesity and toxifying their children? When will they wake up? And that's our message. I didn't just write a book about small farms. I wrote it for conservatives. I wrote it for conservatives to understand that as soon as you start supporting your small farms, you start supporting rural America, its economy, its culture, and you start opposing the large Green New monolith, the Green New Deal. The answer to environmental problems in food is not a bigger, bigger, bigger bureaucracy. It's just the opposite. It's distributism. It's the local. It's how we've always done it. It's how we fought the British. If you want to go big, you can go Mao. You can go Stalin. And then you can, you can starve tens of millions of people in a very short period without ever having to build a gas chamber. All right, That's where we are. And totalitarianism, historically, if you want to look at history accurately, generally comes from the left, Mr. Hitler. He wasn't you know, a right-wing fascist. You know, Mussolini was. Hitler came from the left, the socialist. So the middle is that, you know, we have a regulated capitalism, but we've had an, a, a, an unfair playing field for farmers for decades because large corporate interests have been securing regulatory favoritism for them that, that, that crushes small farms. Wendell Berry wrote about this in an essay in 1977 called Sanitation and the Small Farm. I recommend people read it. It's four pages long and then compare it to what happened with me in 2016 in Vermont. It has not gone away. The stranglehold is tightened. Henry Kissinger reputedly said, uh, whether he said it or not, control the food, control the people. You will give up your Second Amendment rights very quickly for a hamburger if you've never known starvation in your belly or watched it in your dog, your cat, or your grandchild. Okay, Food is imperative. God gave us provision for food. We deviate from his provision at our peril. Read it and weep because we are on the eve of the fall of Babylon the harlot. Now, wherever you are, you can grow more food. If you're in an urban area, you can have an indoor garden. You might do aquaponics, or maybe you connect with your rural people because we've always had country mouse and city mouse working together. This division, this rapacious colonization by the urban world of the countryside in the name of saving us because they're so smart. Well, we saw in COVID how that's unraveling. We see people in New York City have flooded to Vermont and, and flooded from California to Vermont because they realize that they're sitting on a huge Titanic and some are running around arranging the deck chairs, but others are getting in the lifeboats and they're moving where to rural climates where they have less crime, 
fresh air, fresh water, and they can raise their children with healthy food grown from the soil that God provided with life teeming in it. Soil is filled. Some estimates of soil scientists show us that there could be as much, or there is as much as eight tons of living life microbes in just the top four inches of one acre of healthy soil. Hmm. So conservatives, while they're telling us to get solar panels and EV cars largely manufactured in China, spewing massive amounts of carbon through coal that they make most solar panels with, polluting the groundwater, lithium mines, all of the mechanization, all of the different precious metals and spewing of pollution that goes on there. We're not to look at that. Just, just look at the CO2. Just look at the net zero. Well, if you look at all those chemicals, they're not net zero at all. They're net destroying the planet in the name of saving it. These are Rockefellers. These are Gateses. These are Klaus Schwab people. And they're going to tell you that you need be afraid. The climate's ending. You heard Greta Thunberg thundering. Be afraid. Now, buy an EV car and all will be well. Gee, they're going after cows control the food supply in the name of saving the planet. Why aren't they going after horses and dressage riders? Why aren't they going after the 90 million cats and dogs that eat 25% of our nation's meat every year? Why aren't they going after golf courses or ski resorts or trips on jets for, for, for with no pollution control devices? So you can go to the, to Honduras for a weekend or wherever people go. How about lawnmowers? We mow an area of lawns now in America, larger than the state of Texas, the lawnmowers are horrifically inefficient. They have no pollution control technologies. Many cars get better mileage. I beg your pardon. Many of them get worse miles than a truck. We haven't counted the leaf blowers. We haven't counted the chemicals on the lawns. We haven't counted that we're destroying ourselves with things that look pretty, but like sin are an illusion and lead us into something which leads us into captivity, dependence, and ill health. And then the same people that gave you mRNA vaccines are going to cure your health issues when you get cancer from eating their crap or when you get diabetes from their high fructose corn syrup. They subsidize corn to the tune of billions of dollars. Ethanol does not save the environment. It just makes profit for some corporations while they dirty the climate. Cash to clunkers did not save the environment. It, it, it helped new car sales while retiring cars early and trucks early that had a lot of useful life in them. And we could have you know, got more extended life out of that pollution. Some pollution is necessary. Maybe we use it for food instead of flat screen TVs, sunglasses, and cell phones. But nobody's telling anybody to consume less. They're just telling them to consume stuff in new toxic bottles. Oh, EV cars, solar panels, look at me. Aren't I great? I saved the planet. No, you did not. You actually destroyed the planet. You're deluded. Welcome to the world of Satan. Now, what in contrast to cows and farms show us? You could sequester more carbon by converting a certain portion of cows, whatever it is, back to the land and out of confinement facilities that treat them horribly in a way that I don't think God would approve of. You could put them back on the land. They spread their own manure. They rebuild soil. They counter erosion. They improve water uh, retention. They diminish the amount of toxic chemicals that you have to produce many times abroad and then pour onto the soil. We're told that cow flatulence is the problem, but cow manure rebuilds soils and replaces synthetic fertilizers that are themselves made from natural gas, i.e. methane. So I'm going to, I want people to get that because once you're equipped to get that, you can say to these people, 
Why are you trying to continue to destroy rural culture and rural agriculture and farmers and the family farm in the name of saving us? And here's a great example to close with your question about the two extremes. I'm going to write an article about this. Harvard was retained. You know, Harvard. Oh, the the Harvard name. So Harvard to me has never made, well, they've made real morons of themselves in recent years with Ibram Kendi and a lot of their other stuff. I mean, just absolutely no critical thinking going on there at all. It just it must be more money than brain cells. I don't know. But Harvard was commissioned to do, you know, so, so by the way, a little aside. So we hear about Exxon and others doing studies to show that oil was not as bad for the climate. And that's actually Vermont's AG wants to criminally indict them for that. But what about the renewable industry? What about what, what they're doing? So Harvard is commissioned to do a study on what would happen if we converted our industrial cow, you know, both dairy and meat production, to a regenerative structure. In other words, organic. And we put all the cows back to the land. And you actually hit on it, Pastor. That's a false dichotomy. There aren't just two choices. So then they go on and they say, there isn't enough land to put all the cows back to grass because they take longer to grow. And then we'd have to give them more grass. And so then we give them less grain. Well, let me show you the layers of lies from the stupid, stupid, demonstrably stupid people at Harvard. Forgive me as a Christian if I'm being too harsh, but stupid is the English word for this. It is either grossly ignorant or grossly corrupt of Harvard. First of all, when you're measuring those cows, let us measure the environmental impacts of all the grain you're now growing. Second of all, it's a false choice. You don't have to do either or. Nobody could. We're talking about just moving back from the industrial consolidation vertically and horizontally of the industrial agricultural system. It's destroying our aquifers, destroying our soils, destroying our health, destroying our cows. Oh, but we can, we can only do it that way because we've taken all of our farmland and we've converted it to urban and suburban areas. So there's no way to reclaim that. It's a false. It's false. Everything about what Harvard is saying is absolutely false. And if you study Joel Salatin and some of the other writers I you know review in my book, I read a lot of books studying soil science for my book. Right. If you took just about 20 or 30 percent of the existing cows, just a portion of them, not 100 percent Harvard, just 20%, 30%, and put them back on the land, you would sequester more carbon dioxide in just a few years than has been generated in the entire industrial revolution. This is the science. But AOC says we have to get rid of cows because they pass gas, even though 95% of their gas, by the way, is emission emitted through belches. So even that. These are people. Um, John Kerry, our climate envoy, so highly qualified John Kerry. He should have brought Al Gore with him. They could reinvent the universe because God didn't do it right. So they're going to do it better. They're talking about closing down American farms from cows to save the planet because now it's a climate crisis. These people are pathological liars. So American conservatives should take a hard look at the cow because as soon as you look at the cow and you contrast what they're trying to do with agriculture, You'll find that it, it highlights in contrast, C.S. Lewis, again, every, we understand everything by contrast, how much they're lying. Everything they're saying is lying. And why aren't they going after pigs and chickens, which produce much more toxic effluent than a cow manure? I'll tell you why. Because they already own the pigs and chickens because you can't raise pigs and chickens without grain, right? You just can't. You need some kind of grain. You either grow it yourself or other. And they own all the grain. They already got GMO grain to the pigs and chickens. Your cows and sheep, now, if you want to have liberty, 
you can still hold out with your cows and sheep. They have patented soybeans. They have patented corn. They control. We've lost 94% of heirloom vegetable varieties. Heirloom means God provided. Lost forever. 94%. When are people going to wake up in fear and terror of the Lord for disobeying him to this degree? They, they not only patented the soybeans, but Monsanto v. Bowman, thank you, Barack Obama, for supporting Monsanto in that case, involved a farmer, I believe in Indiana, who grew some seeds, some soybean seeds that he had bought from Monsanto, and he replanted them next year. And Monsanto sued him and said, no, you have to pay us for those. He's like, yeah, but I grew them on my own property. Oh, no, but we own the genetics. Imagine if I did that. I sold, I raised border collies. Imagine if I sold you a border collie. And then I told you a year later, every puppy that ever comes out of that border collie is mine because I own the DNA. They want to own life. Forget about individual sovereignty. When you can't own your own corn or your own cow, you can still own your own cow. They've just announced uh, this horrific technology. It sounds like to me out of England where they're going to splice or they have spliced pork DNA, porcine DNA with a soybean so they can grow more food for you to eat. And then this artificial soy burger is supposed to be healthier for the ecosystem. Really? No, that soy burger is now completely dependent on chemicals, large manufacturing industries, the compaction of soil, tilling, glyphosate, um, perhaps atrazine, certainly fossil fuels. And in the process, they've now created a factory that's got shining equipment, elaborate and expensive processes, fetal tissues, and then now you're totally dependent on them as well. You're totally dependent on them. They're totally dependent on chemicals. The siphon of money goes in a funnel all one way, and you're now enslaved, and you don't even have the liberty of a sharecropper or an American colonist. I do apologize for my cows. I see my wife is with them, and they are running around here. There are about 15 of them because they're expecting some food. So I thought that's the sound of hunger. Yes, yes. So, so well, I threw a lot at you guys. Thank you for allowing me that rant. Certainly. I hope people get it. You, you get it. That's why we're here. I mean, I'm really excited that more and more people are waking up. And once you're equipped with these truths, once you wake up to this, you don't go back. It's like becoming a Christian. Once you see the light by the sun, S-U-N and S-O-N, to paraphrase Lewis again, you, right. you see everything that way. Once you start seeing through their charlotte, their, their, um, their chicanery, all right, once you start seeing that they're lying to you, then you start realizing that oh, they're actually lying about everything. If they can lie about cows and they call people who believe that this country was founded on Christian principles, domestic terrorists, maybe they're lying about everything else too, even their vaccines, even their critical race theory. Even their climate change and their transgender theory and their queer theory and their gender theory and their teaching two-year-olds to be sexual beings, their grooming of children. It's almost like everything out of them came from the fathers of lies, the father of lies and deception. Let's wake up. Christians need to unite and wake up. That's what our history is. Are we alive? Are we men in Christ? Live free or die, baby. Sorry get hot. New Hampshire, they, they get it on their license plate in New Hampshire. And I asked them, so, well, why don't you die? Why don't you just die? There is an inter live free or, or fight would be my adage. Anyway, thank you. I didn't well, even have much coffee today and you got me all worked. <laughs> wow. That's, um, 
I would be interested sometime to, to, to hear what it sounds like when you have had some coffee. <laughs> well, then I remind people that pastors were armed and at the ready in the American Revolution and led right. a lot of it. And then, and right. so what kind of pastor do we have today? Pastors who shut down services because they didn't have masks. Are we mice or are we men? How do we compare with the martyrs of the past? You know, um, why, why am I not thirsty to be a martyr? Okay, let's just ask that question. If I truly see this world as a vapor and the next one is the awesome, graceful, joyful bliss that it is, I'm all in, you know? Anyway, that's how we should be. The fear mongers use fear to dominate us. Orwell told us this, but we see it now. Oh, climate. Oh, the climate. Oh, COVID. Let's Let's put injections in all the little children so an 80-year-old can live another month. They have debased us with fear into cringing, coffin-residing, non-Christian slaves. And Christ sets us free from the fear, sets us free from the fear of death or torture or condemnation. Let us be tortured and condemned on his, uh, for his sake and count it joy. Is that not what our scripture says, Pastor? It's not, yes. it's sometimes easier said than done, but that's the difference between talking and walking. And I'm inviting people to join me. I'm inviting people in a revolution simply with the truths about cows, no guns, just food supply. You want to fight Bill Gates, grow a garden. You want to buy, fight, fight, uh, you know, Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer, the aspirin company, which is now you can go on their site. Bayer is policing plant patents around the world while they find more ways to patent things all the time. And there's a whole industry of people in bioengineering splicing frogs with acorns or whatever they're doing because you only get paid creating something new. There's nothing new under the sun, we're told. There's nothing new in hypertension, high blood pressure or heart disease, but it's new that the National Health Service is spending less and less money on those things that are killing tens of millions of Americans every year and more and more money on human fetal tissue research to create replacement organs for the Bill Gates crowd. And they're not saving a single life in doing it, but they're creating a techno-mystical profession for a whole uh, bevy of uh, of, of intellectual elites who have no common sense at all. And that's how we have, we have two worlds. Now you have people who understand where their world comes from and common sense. And you have people whose heads are so far in the clouds, they're Icarus flying to the sun and their, their wings are melting and they're going to take us to the earth. You know, I'm reminded of uh, GK Chesterton. He said, the reason most people don't see God is um, they're too busy kicking their heels at heaven. So their heads are stuck firmly in the mud that's Bill Gates. That's all these. He's, he's got a designer mosquito now. He wants to put chalk, chalk in the atmosphere to block the sun. He's got a technological solution for everything. And usually he's got a patent and a farmland investment to go behind it. People are waking up, Pastor. And I hope they're waking up ultimately to uh, trust in Christ, because that is the foundation here, no matter what else. Amen. Right. right? Yeah, right. So who are you? Um, who are some of the people you, you mentioned Wendell Berry, you mentioned Joel Salatin. Who are some others um, that you've that that influenced you in your reading in the field of agriculture? Well, actually, Roger Scrutton, 
who passed away a few years ago, is a British conservative, and he's written some beautiful stuff. Uh, E.F. Schumacher, uh, Small is Beautiful. Um, it's interesting because we have allies. Many people on the left understand, too, that local is better. And that's why when they went for the Green New Deal, they went off the reservation. They went off their own reservation from regenerative agriculture. And that's something else I want to mention that I take pains in the book is that I don't think actually that should be a dichotomy either of either all organic or all conventional. We saw what happened in Sri Lanka when they cut the conventional fertilizers, um, which had some, it, it dramatically dropped production. That doesn't mean Sri Lanka couldn't convert over or have a balance. It's not about the two extremes again, like the Harvard thing. Um, in fact, a, a conventionally produced food that I buy locally here in Vermont may have a smaller environmental impact and even be healthier for me long term than a, a supposedly organic product if it's shipped from far away or if I can't trust it or, you know, there are other issues. Um, but so it's other writers. There's a writer named Aldo Leopold um, who wrote in the 1920s and 30s. And I don't know what his politics are because it shouldn't matter. You know, so I find it interesting. I visited with Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a lifelong Democrat. He couldn't believe a Republican was getting this stuff. And meanwhile, he's very disenchanted with the current Democratic Party and its Green New Deal. He writes about it in The Art of Loading Brush. He condemns, this is Wendell Berry now, he's very much on the left, condemns the Green New Deal as a horrible sellout. He also condemns the attacks on Trump people because what Wendell Berry sees as a Kentucky tobacco farmer is that the attacks on Donald Trump are an attack on rural America, treating people like rubes and stupid rednecks, when in fact, it might be the other way around. When 30% of high school graduates don't know how to boil an egg, it may not be us country people that are so stupid. You know, when you think, when 10% of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from a brown cow, I mean, how far away from your food supply can you be? Wendell Berry wrote an essay once years ago, and it stuck with me. He said, corporate America, if it could, would feed humans directly from a pipeline from the factory right to their navel and skip all the rest. They just haven't figured it out yet or they'd be doing it. That is an accurate vision of where we are right now. And the globalists want to feed you insects and they want to feed you soy and they want to control all of it, not just for profit. Social credits, they're going to control it through an electronic money system too. So soon you won't even be able to use your cash to go buy a pig from your neighbor. So some other writers, and, and by the way, Wendell Berry was key for me. I was learning a lot of this just experientially as a farmer, uh, both about how difficult it was, about the quality of the, uh, uh, the grain prices, the regulatory structures, and also how healthy the food was that we raised, how much better it was in flavor and quality and healthfulness. Do you want to get cancer? Eat healthy food. Then you don't need chemo, okay? Generally speaking, this is God's provision. Um, Let me think. So Wendell was very pivotal. And then I found Joel Salatin and, you know, he's just awesome. Joel has about 15 books out and they vary both in, you know, you can farm, how to farm. I mean, all different dimensions, the how to. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. In an interview once, Joel said something I thought was insightful. He says, Wendell Berry is a writer who farms. I am a farmer who writes. And I think that um, I'm kind of um, the other way around. You know, maybe I'm in the middle of both of them. Another good writer, Wes Jackson, very much on the left. I'm not happy with you, Mr. Jackson, for going woke and assigning uh, infinite number of pronouns uh, to your staff. 
but Wes Jackson's work at the Land Institute in Kansas has been very important to show the value of perennial crops. He's also a Christian, um, you know, putative. He says he's a Christian. He's written a really great book called Nature as Measure. Another one is called Altars of Unhewn Stone, which really these books, many of them, they get into the sense of what we've lost by leaving the land and our connection to it. We've lost more than just, you know, petting a cow on the head. We've actually lost our very sense of who we are. And this, I think, is underneath the, 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 uh, the COVID pandemic is many people were already alienated, stressed in a material world. And they didn't know why. And so when it when it shook at its foundations, many of them said, OK, let's shake it off. Um, some other writers, um, there's a guy named uh, Montgomery. What's his last name? Uh, he's in. The, the, there's a long bibliography in the book of more current right. writers. There are some right. great writers out there. Uh, Sacred Cow. Um, you know, I'm sorry to not remember. Michael Moss wrote a book about food. Uh, Stephanie Seneff has written a book recently from my publisher, Chelsea Green, about the dangers of glyphosate. Uh, there's another one called, that's it, about, that again, I reference, I'm forgetting the author's name right now, about the increase in sterility in, in boys in, in America, how our sperm rates as men has been dropping steadily for 50 years. It's almost certainly attributable to what we're putting in our bodies. If you replace what God gave you with man's uh, idolatrous machination, you may come up short. And so a return to the land, and, and I, don't want to, I don't want people to be panicked, and I don't want to make it urban versus rural. I want to wake people up. I want to wake them up to Christ. I want to wake them up to the totalitarians. I want to wake them up to their own ability to, to seize their own health. And maybe you shouldn't be gluttonous in a society that praises fat. I'm not fat phobic. I want to be healthy. You know, so all of these are connected. Next question. Sorry, I'm long-winded in my No, answer. no, no. That was, that was good. Have you ever read H.J. Massingham in the UK? What's the name? Uh, his name was um, H.J. Or, or Henry J. Massingham. He was a, an agrarian writer in the 19... 19- teens and 20s who wrote just a whole bunch of books oh yeah when he saw um, what was i going don't think on. so but you you reminded me though of another writer out of england chris smage who yes. has written a small farm future he and i have talked i actually i've quoted from a little bit we have slightly different views but we agree on a lot of things including the importance of rural um uh, culture and trying to retain it and another one i think it was albert hill was it hill that Howard? Uh, that in England that I remember that yeah, Wendell Albert Berry House or Albert Howard. That's him. Albert Howard. That's it. Yes. Sorry. Uh, not enough coffee to fire yeah, the neurons, but some other right. good writers. And so there are great minds that go before us. And what you and I are doing, by the way, what I'm doing in this book is I'm trying to take the baton. Wendell Berry just had his birthday. I think he's 89. You know, right. Joel's still a spring chicken, but yes. Wendell's getting up there. But also, we need to find our allies, whether or not we're passing the baton. We all need to be a rising voice of Horton Hears a Who. You know how popular, you know, Dr. Seuss is now. And we all right. have to say, we are here, we are here, we are here. And by the way, we don't need you. We can raise our own animals. We always did. What are you offering us other than, than sin and toxins wrapped in shiny bottles? You're doing to us what you did to the American Indians, if you think about it. And... Um, uh, Wes Jackson writes about this, you know, the, that what really destroyed the uh, the Indian culture was that they got addicted to things without which they could not do. 
And that's why we're enslaved now, because nobody wants to risk. Imagine, you know, if you went to work in the American Revolution, if you were Nathan Hale and, you know, and you risk getting killed. Um, yeah. What did you risk? You didn't lose a TV. You didn't lose, you know, your we have so many so many things that we can. We're a recreational, soft consumer society. What you did lose then is you lost your farm and your wife got no life insurance and they took all your animals. You lost everything. Where's that character, Pastor? That's what we need. So I, I digress there again. I'm, no, I'm having fun digressing. I hope it's okay. Well, that that is good. I, I, I regret the hour is already upon us. So probably going to need to to close things out. But for right now, though, I mean, what are two things that people, you know, I know s- support laws that don't um, go against s- small uh, farmers, rural landholders and such. What are, in, in addition to growing a garden, what are two things that people can do that can better help them to connect to God's world? Really great. Yeah. Because one of the things I try to do in the book is infuse people with policy ideas. Well, um, one is I re- on the line of books, I recommend a book by Joel Salatin and Dr. Sina McCullough called Beyond Labels, and it will help people navigate when they go to the store what they can buy that's healthy and reliable and what is not. It's such a difficult adversarial battle sometimes that people give up and just grab the Doritos, and they shouldn't do that. And there are certain foods that are that are not so important to be organic and some that really should be. You know, like a banana or an avocado is less important. It's got a skin on it. Potato or something grown in the ground is more likely to absorb contaminants. Beyond Labels is a great book. The second thing is, I think people should get informed, kind of like telling people in the Bible, I'd say find the resources you enjoy reading. Don't force yourself through numbers when you could have joy in Song of Solomon, you know, and and you'll you'll get there in the rest. So just start poking. Don't shut it off because it seems overwhelming. Get educated and get educated about uh, the legislation in your area. Thomas Massey is awesome. We have some legislators in Kentucky. We have, mm-hmm. you need to find your legislators, state, local, federal, local zoning laws are restricting people from raising chickens because it smells bad. Fight them. Federal laws are giving huge money to huge corporations to toxify your soil and make cheap food. They make fructose, high fructose corn syrup by subsidizing it. It's cheap, cheap, cheap. And then they want to tax us for drinking it. You know what I mean? Why don't you just stop subsidizing it? Okay. So learn about the policy and get involved in your local politics and your national politics and learn about where your food comes from. So you can first and foremost, take care of yourself and your family by not putting Satan's toxins in your bodies and your children's bodies beyond labels is the book. All right. And you can read my book, smallfarmrepublic.com. Um, you can find me or find out more. And I'm writing now for Liberty Nation. I'm about to write for Christian News Service. They're starting up again. And I'm writing for an outfit uh, called Door to Freedom, which is Merrill Nass and some other people. And it's largely, you know, questioning uh, vaccine efficacy and the next pandemic that they're planning for us. Let's All hope right. it goes wrong. But anyway, yes. so I'm grateful to your listeners for listening and to you, Pastor, for reaching out and having me and indulging me. Um, oh, and let my my uh, thinning hair down and uh, but that you get it. I'm excited. People are getting it. Let's spread it like a good infection, which is what C.S. Lewis calls Christianity. Let's spread it. No more so fear. Book, 
Yes, the book is Small Farm Republic by Joel Clark. So, or excuse me, John Clark. I got Joel Salton and John, and, and John Clark. No works. So, yes. <laughs> well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. This has been really good, and uh, I hopefully would love to talk again sometime. I hope we can do it again. You're being very graceful if I've been off the reservation here, but I've no. Uh, this is good. Thank you. I, I was looking forward to this for this reason because I know the audience we have. So, and, and we have Christ as our audience too. So in his name, I pray that more people will come together so we can have strength and and drive out all fear, except of God. Thanks for indulging me. It's been an honor. The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.